If you have a Bible, I would ask that you would turn to Psalm 116. I'm not one who usually deviates from a book when we're doing um, a study through a book to do a one-off study, but I had something that was really pressing on my heart um, for about a week and a half now. Next week, we're going to continue through our study in Genesis, and we're going to begin a three-week mini-series. We're up to Genesis 3, and that's one of the most central passages to the whole Bible. That is the chapter where everything changed and everything shall remain changed until Jesus comes back and redeems this earth and, and, and makes it what it was always intended to be. So that is going to be a massive uh, work to go through that passage. And much of our theology comes from that passage. But this week, I felt led to preach through Psalm 116. It's my favorite psalm in the Bible. Marcy actually made me up a plaque um, with this scripture engraved on it years ago so that it would stand as a reminder of why I love the truths that I'm going to share with you this morning so much. There, there's so many wonderful psalms that have met me at so many different times in my life in so many unique ways, and I would bet that the same is true of you. There's, there's just those times where you go to the Word and you go to the Psalms and you end up finding that perfect psalm where the psalmist, inspired by the Spirit of God, was able to give pen to paper and write things in a poetic and beautiful way that gives cry to the things that are in your soul in ways that you would not know how to give expression to. Um, I love the book of Psalms, but there are several reasons that this one is my favorite. Um, the first being that this, is, this psalm is just so raw. Um, second is it's so real, and we're going to see that as we go through it. Uh, the third and probably the reason why this psalm connects with me, and I pray that it connects with you, is I identify with the way that the psalmist engages and is engaged by the Lord. Number four is I identify with the up and down nature of the Christian life and just life in general, the way that it's described here. And the last reason why this psalm is so meaningful to me is I identify with the conclusion that even when things are at their toughest or Maybe especially when things are at their toughest. It's just like Peter said in John 6, 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. So why I believe it's relevant before we jump in? I think that a lot of Christian teaching, and in particular testimonies, make it sound like a walk with Jesus is just this continual upward trajectory. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard like, man, I was just down in the dumps down here and Jesus met me and I began to walk with him and then it was just like this skyrocket to me being awesome the rest of my life. And um, first of all, that's not what I've experienced in my Christian life. In years of counseling, it's not what I've observed in the Christian lives of others. And it's not what I see in the Bible of anybody in the Bible. That's not their experience. Because of that, I feel like people can be confused on how to share their hearts with the Lord and how to share their hearts with others during seasons where their faith gets rocked. And I love how the psalmist can be awesome about where he's at and admit that some things in this fallen world just stink. 
Yet in good times and bad times, you know you'll have your share. He still sees Jesus as the only answer. So let's dive in. The psalmist starts off by making this precious declaration of his love for the Lord. It says, I love the Lord because he's heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I shall call upon him as long as I live. So he starts off by giving three reasons for his love for the Lord and then one conclusion that stems from those three reasons for his love for the Lord in the first two verses. He says, I love the Lord because he's heard my voice. I love the Lord because he heard my pleas for mercy. I love the Lord because he has inclined his ear to me. And as we look at the end of verse 1 going into verse 2, remember whenever you see a therefore, you have to ask what it's there for. So because the Lord has heard his voice, because the Lord has heard his pleas for mercy, because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore... Because the Lord continues to show himself faithful in all of these things over and over and over, therefore, I shall call upon the name of the Lord as long as I live. I I love this. What a great way to set the foundation of this psalm. Look, regardless of where you're at right now, whether you come here during seasons of great rejoicing or you come here mired in the pit, regardless of where you're at, think about those times when you have called upon the Lord like you're going to see in this passage. Think about those times where you called upon the name of the Lord because you thought there was no way you could possibly make it through the thing that you were in the midst of. Anybody ever had one of those situations where you're like, there's no way that I can see the other side. There's no light at the other side of the tunnel, and if there is, it's an oncoming train, right? You ever been in one of those situations? Think about all those times where something seemed so consuming that it completely dominated your thought life and your prayer life to the point where it bordered on obsession. Think about those times where the Lord was all that you had. Like the old saying goes, you will never realize that the Lord is all that you need until the Lord is all that you have. So think about those times where you've been in a spot where you could say, the only thing I have is you, Lord. Think about those times where you thought you could not possibly be sustained And then the Lord sustains you. And it produces the same thing in your heart that it produces in the psalmist. Because because of those times when the only thing I could do was call on Jesus. And because he listened to me when I had nowhere else to turn but Jesus. Therefore, I will call on Jesus as long as I live. There have been times, and I'll bet you can identify with this, there's multiple psalms like this, where I've just laid in my bed, and I haven't been able to pray complex, beautiful prayers. All I've been able to pray is, I love you, Lord. You know that I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. 
no, you know. You know that I love you, Lord. And that was all I could really give him in my prayer life in that moment. And that's what the psalmist is doing here in this verse. And sometimes when you're going through a season of just being down in the trenches, the best thing that you could do is pray 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. And you begin to pray, I love you, Lord, because you first loved me. You love me, Lord. And because of that, I love you, Lord. And I love you, Lord, because you first loved me, Lord. And because you first loved me, Lord, I love you, Lord. I know that that sounds so simple, but those times when you take a gut punch that's so heavy, where your faith gets so rocked, isn't simplicity the place that you need to get brought back to? We don't need something complicated to be going through at that time. And that certainly seems what the psalmist is looking for here. He's saying, I love you, Lord, because you hear me. You hear me because you love me. And because you love me, I can grow in confidence that you hear me. And as we look at verse 3, we see the problem that the psalmist is going through. And it was a really, really big, ugly, gigantic trial of biblical proportions. Look at verse 3. It says, the snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish. So this verse has four really significant things to say about the trial that he's going through. He's saying death was all around me. He's saying that the pain of death has taken hold of me. He's saying that he's going through a time of great distress. And then he even is so deep in it that forth he refers to his distress as anguish. This is not something small, brothers and sisters. The language that he uses here in the Hebrew is the strongest language that can possibly be used. The psalm doesn't tell us much about who wrote it. Some psalms have what you call a subscript or a postscript that tell you a little bit of information about the background of the psalm. This psalm does not have that. It doesn't tell us much about who wrote it or what they were going through, but most commentators, when they look at this language and compare it against other psalms, believe that this was written by David during the time when he was running for his life from his son Absalom. Think about that for a moment. I don't think I could imagine anything more gut-wrenching. And one of the neat things about being a preacher is I get to look out and I get to see my son right there. And I couldn't imagine my life getting to the place where my son hated me so much that I had to run for my life because he wanted to kill me. And I'm crying out, Lord, this, this little boy that I once held in my arms is now aiming for my very destruction. Could you imagine anything more painful? I, I, I can't. And it's human nature to look and compare ourselves to the trials of others. So I want to encourage you, whatever you're going through this morning, this man knows what it's like to be down in the dumps. The Spirit of God wrote this through his trials for your benefit. Think about that. 
The Spirit of God wrote this through his trials, looking forward and in his omniscient way knew in 2019 there'd be a group of people sitting in a church in Tom's River that would need to hear this. He wrote this for your benefit. It's beautiful. God is aware and he is acquainted with grief and pain and sorrow. Christ endured the cross and endured the deepest grief and pain and sorrow just so he could show us that he is a savior that is not far off, but he is acquainted with our grief. And look what the psalmist does in the middle of this meltdown. This is so cool. Look at verse four. He cries out to the Lord from the bottom of his heart. He says, then I called upon the name of the Lord. Oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Do you have punctuation in your Bibles? I hope when you read your Psalms that you're not like, oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. He's saying, oh Lord, I pray, deliver me. So notice where his attention is drawn. He takes his eyes off the trial. He lifts his eyes to the heavens. As we read in Psalm 73 earlier, I lift up mine eyes to the heavens, for that's where my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord. And check out this simple but powerful primal prayer again. Then I called upon the name of the Lord, O Lord I pray, deliver my soul. He's saying, God, I'm begging. Save my life. Deliver my soul. Deliver me from anguish. And I love that the terminology, he could have used multiple terms here in verse four, but he uses the word deliver my soul. He could have said deliver my life. He could have said deliver my spirit. He chooses the word soul here. Sometimes we could get to a place in our walk with Christ where the condition of our soul is of more importance and of more value than our actual life itself. That's where he's at. This is just a beautifully simple prayer. God, as I go through this season of profound pain of which I did not know the sorts of which even existed, my soul feels like it's shriveling up and dying. Oh God, I beg of you, save my soul. Sustain me, oh God. This is so much more biblical than telling people God will never give you more than you can handle. Where do you ever see that in the Bible? If God never planned on giving you more than you can handle, then you wouldn't need a God in your life to begin with. God often, often, it's normative. God often allows you to go through more than you can handle just so you're forced to rely on him rather than your own innate ability to persevere. And that's where the psalmist is at here. He's saying, God, this is too much for me to handle. I can't do this on my own. Oh God, I beg of you, come and intervene. And as you intervene, show yourself 
to me. I just need to see you, Lord. It's kind of like 1 Kings 19 when Elijah goes out to the precipice when he's standing on Mount Carmel and he's just looking for the Lord. And it says that there was a violent earthquake, but the Lord was not in it. Well, surely in this, in this fire, you must be in it. No, the Lord was not in it. Surely in this hurricane force wind, you must be in it. No, the Lord is not in it. And I've often put myself in the shoes of Elijah and thought, don't show me one more thing that you're not in. I need to see you. I don't need to see where you're not. And then it says there was this gentle blowing, or maybe your translation would say a still calm voice. And that's when the Lord shows up and he sees him. And then comes my favorite part of the psalm because it's just such a jarring juxtaposition to the verses that just went before it. Look at verses 5 through 9. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you've delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Just stop for a moment and think about how this psalm just unfolded before your very eyes over the course of just one verse. In verse 4, he's saying, Ah! Help! I'm freaking out! I'm dying over here! I beg you, oh God! Gracious is our Lord and compassionate. Yes, righteous is our God. I mean, it's just like, whoa, right? This is not being crafted the way the English teachers, sorry English teachers, tell their kids to typically write a story. In most stories, you have a premise, a plot, a climax, and a solution. This is much more abrupt than that, isn't it? It's much more raw. It's much more true to life, to the way that life actually unfolds. It's like his head is on a swivel in this verse. He goes from crying out, I'm dying, to I have 11 amazing truths that I'm going to declare about you, O oh Lord, in the next four verses. Like, wow, to go from that place to that place so quickly. And he starts off with, I think I have a slide of these 11 truths that he declares about the Lord. Gracious is the Lord, in verse 5. Righteous are you, O Lord. Remember, again, this is the guy that just one verse previously is saying, God, save me. I'm going down to the pit of Sheol here. Gracious is the Lord. Righteous are you, O Lord. Our God is a merciful God, in verse 5. The Lord preserves the simple. How about this one? Tell me, well, you can't tell me because you, this isn't really a two-way conversation. The Lord met me at rock bottom when I was on the bottom floor of rock bottom. Anybody have to meet Jesus that way? Anybody here that stubborn and hard-headed where that was the only way that the Lord was going to show a knucklehead like you that you needed Jesus, that you had to take the elevator to the bottom floor and then say, is this really it or are there some slums underneath here that I can continue to go down to? And then you go down to the slums and you're like, can I get a shovel so I could dig a couple floors underneath? And when you are underneath the underneath of the bottom of the basement, the Lord 
came and met you at rock bottom. Ever been there? And then he says in verse 7, you've brought rest to my soul in the midst of its distress. You've dealt bountifully with me when I had nothing, when I had no crutch. It's funny that people call Christianity a crutch. He's saying, I don't even have a crutch. I'm envious of the guy with the crutch. And in the middle of being crutchless, the Lord comes and meets him and says, I'm going to deal bountifully with you when you have nothing else to lean on. In verse 8, the Lord delivered my soul from death. And I love just the bang, 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 bang punch of verse 8. You delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling any further into the abyss in which I was headed. The Lord granted me life in verse 9. Has the Lord ever been so gracious to step in and intervene and when you were just you were steadfast on running the opposite way of him. And in his infinite mercy, in a doctrine that we call irresistible grace, he grabbed you by the nape of the neck and said, no way, man. You're not running any further. I'm going to release the hounds of heaven on you. And as fast as you can rebel, they can love you twice as quickly. That's what he's saying here. So just stop for a moment and consider this time of praise that the psalmist just has. And consider where he was just prior to this praise explosion. It's jarring. But as beautiful as that all is, it's the next verses, the next two verses that hit me the hardest because it shows me just how true to life this psalm truly is. Look at verses 10 and 11. I believed when I spoke, I'm greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What happened to that praise time he was just having for four straight verses? What happened to that God who's gracious and merciful? Oh yes, our God is abundant. You've rescued my feet from stumbling, my eyes from tears. What happened to that God? It's like that time of praise didn't even exist it's like he has this time of praise except afterwards he does not get and then they all lived happily ever after like I said to you guys in the intro I feel like so many testimonies are shaped by Disney fairy tales than they are shaped by the actual realities of real life because I have had times when I've brought low, been brought low. Anybody here ever been brought low before? Any of you? Okay, none. So, all right, I'm preaching this to me. Um, I've had times when I've cried out to the Lord in the midst of being brought low. Guess what? I've had times when God answered me when I've cried out to the Lord in the midst of that low place. I've had times where I've gone on a thanking spree like you just saw in verses 5 through 9, but never once has it ever resulted in and they all lived happily ever after. No way. There's always another trial around the corner. 
I've heard it said that you're either in a trial, you're going into a trial, or you're coming out of a trial. And that will be the rest of your life. Sorry if that is a surprise to you, but if that's a surprise, I don't know what to tell you. You've got other problems. Uh, I think that fairy tale testimonies are seriously one of the most unbiblical and unhelpful thing that happen in the church today. Like when people tell you, you ever heard this one? I've even said this goofy statement. I, I was writing this down in my notes and I was like, ooh, that hurts because I've said this in front of people. My worst day in the Lord is still better than my best day when I was in the world. That sounds so spiritual, right? It's simply not true. I've been to too many hospital visits. I've had too many late night phone calls of yet another tragedy. I've had too many times where blinding physical pain was so real where I've actually prayed, Lord, would you just take me rather than let me continue to go on like this. Let's be honest when we share our testimonies. Sharing another fairy tale does not help. If somebody wants to see a fairy tale, they can leave here and go put on a movie. Let's be honest. The truth is, if you're in Christ, regardless of what happens, you live with a hope that you never could have had while you were in the world apart from Christ. That part is true. That's how to tell a true testimony. But Jesus even told you that a walk with him is a calling to deny yourself take up a cross, and die. Did Jesus say, you know what? Follow me, and it will be happily ever after. And then you get heaven! Heaven is when it's happily ever after. He never promised you that this life would be without trial or tribulation. In fact, he promised you so many times. Like, if you ever go to the Lord saying, Lord, I thought this was going to be different. He, if he was to speak audibly to you, he would say, Why? I told you it wouldn't be different. I've told you, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake and many, many other verses of the such. So let's be true when we tell our testimonies. There are both good times and bad times. And the Lord is still the Lord in the midst of both. And he's still good in the midst of both. That's a Christian testimony. And that's exactly what the psalmist is getting at here. Look at the rawness of what he's expressing in verse 10. He's not just saying that he was greatly afflicted. He's saying, this is not a matter of my perspective. And you know what, maybe you could share a couple things because my perspective is really a little bit off and I just need a little bit of tweaking and a little bit of seeing things correctly. He's saying, I really was greatly afflicted. That's truth. I believed with all my heart when I cried out to the Lord and I said, I am being crushed under the weight of the affliction that you're allowing into my life. That's verse 10. In verse 11, in the greatest hour of his distress, he's saying, I lost all ability to be able to trust in anybody. You ever been there? Man. He even goes to say, in the midst of my alarm, I said, I believed it when I said, all men are liars. He's kind of getting a little jaded here, isn't he? A slight tangent, 
but I could not even begin to number the amount of people that, they, that tell me that they have left the church because of this exact reason that's expressed here in verse 11. Constant disappointment of being let down by other people have led them to the belief, why bother trying to trust anybody ever again only to be hurt and disappointed when I try to do it? Why bother getting back up on the bike only to be let down yet again and again and again? I've sat with people who have gone through church splits. I've sat with people who had a pastor who would rail against the evils of lust in the pulpit only to find out that he was committing adultery while he was teaching those very teachings. I've sat with people who have gotten their teeth kicked in by the people that they've devoted their life to serve. Can we just be real and say, that really hurts? That stinks. That's the kind of stuff that shakes you up. I understand how he said in his alarm, all people are liars. Why bother? They're all phonies. Why bother trusting again, only to be let down by a bunch of hypocrites? Most of you will say that at some point in your life, if you've not already, or if you're not saying it now. But what I want to encourage you, and what I'm going to show you through the rest of this psalm, is even though most of you might say that at some point in your life, you cannot live there. The psalmist is in a dark, dark place when he is saying that. But he does not accept that darkness is his new normal. And brothers and sisters, if you get nothing else this morning, get that. Don't accept that darkness as your new normal. God is too good for that. That's the difference between the psalmist's perspective and the perspective of those who give up on Jesus because the people who claim the name of Jesus have disappointed them. Jesus will never disappoint. People will disappoint you for the rest of your life. But we don't worship the Lord with the expectation of the absence of trials. We worship the Lord armed with the truth that whatever the trial is, that the Lord is still going to be good in the midst of it. He goes into this pretty dark place only to have that simple truth be what delivers him from that pretty dark place. But once again, he lifts his eyes off the ground and he stops staring at the trial and he recalibrates his vision by fixing his eyes back upon the Lord. And then after the trial, I love this. This is awesome. If you zoned out, zone back in. After the trial, he asked this profound question. What could I ever offer to you for all your goodness to me when I was at my lowest, when all I've got is this empty cup? Look at verses 12 through 14. He says, what shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of my salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. What he's essentially saying is, God, you were so good to me when I was at my lowest. What could I ever do to repay you for all of your benefits to me? 
I encourage you that if you think like that, you might want to rethink your understanding of the doctrines of grace. God did not give you grace so that you could spend the rest of your life trying to work it off to repay it. If that was the case, it would, it would not be grace. It would be reciprocation. God, you gave me this free gift. How can I ever pay you back? You can't. That's what makes grace, grace. So how does the psalmist offer to repay the Lord for his kindness? I love this. How does the psalmist offer to repay the Lord for all of his kindness? When he was at his lowest, he's saying, how about I give you my empty cup again so that you can fill it? Think about that. Like, seriously, think, wrap, wrap your heads. Like, think about that. It's nuts. The Lord is the one who fills your empty cup. And the worries and trials of this world begin to make you feel as if that cup, which was once full, is now running on empty again. And as you're empty, the Lord again refills your cup. So how do you pay him back? You keep coming back to your heavenly Father with your empty cup and calling on him to refill that sad empty cup in his goodness. That's the doctrine of grace. That's grace. Anything less is not grace. It's merit. We have been freed from the doctrine of merit. There are so many Christian cults out there that tell you, you know what? Believe in Jesus, but he was good enough to save you, so make sure you spend the rest of your life trying to repay him back. We don't live in merit. We live in grace. But in verse 14, he does devote his life to the service of the Lord after the Lord comes and fills his cup. But remember the order. All you have is an empty cup. If, if you're puffed up and you think that you had more, remember, all you had, all you brought to the table was an empty cup. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die. Then we lift up our empty cup and then the Lord fills that empty cup and he fills that empty cup and when he does, we serve from the place of grace, not from the place of debtors. This is why there is no line in all of hymnody ever written that I hate as much as the line from Come Thou Fount, O oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. That's not the gospel! And I don't care if you like that song. You know how many times I've preached this and people are like, but I love that song. I don't care. It's wrong. That line is so anti-gospel, it's ridiculous. Grace did not save you to put you in a place of indebtedness. Grace freed you from debt because you couldn't free yourself from debt. And as a free man and woman, we now serve from the place of grace and we serve in gratitude, not reciprocation or indebtedness. So the next time you hear that song sung, we sing it here and we've actually changed the lyrics. Oh, by grace, how great a savior daily Christ has proved to be. 
because that's Christian doctrine. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, you are not debtors. And if you think that you're debtors, re-examine what grace truly is. Yet after this, he has another moment where he recounts the trials of living in a fallen world. Look at verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints or godly ones in the New American Standard. Commentators were split on this verse. Some say that he's writing this because he's mourning the loss of somebody that he cared about. Others say that he's lamenting his own life because he doesn't think that he's going to make it out of this current time of trial. If I could just step away from my notes for a second, I think that the text embraces this. I want to share my heart with you for a second. I told Eric on Tuesday morning that I just felt led to step away from Genesis, and I had Psalm 116 on my heart, and I've been wanting to share it for a couple of weeks. And I told him I didn't know why. I told him, you know me, I don't deviate from books. I plan them out. And then Tuesday night, I got a call. It was just a gut punch to this whole church. Tuesday night, this verse just rang in my head. Precious in your sight, O God, is the death of your godly ones. God is good, and loss is painful. Both are true at the same time, and neither of those things contradict one another. Do you understand that? God is good, and loss is painful. Both are true. I remind you, brothers and sisters, loss was never supposed to be a part of God's grand design. Next week, when we get back into Genesis, we're going to be looking at how and why loss entered into this world. But this verse is affirming that loss is painful. And you know what? The way that the verse is constructed, it's saying loss is painful to God. God loves you so much. That loss is even painful to him. That's what the verse is getting at. It's saying precious in his sight. It matters to him when his children are experiencing loss. I think the biggest reason that this is my favorite psalm is because it just shows you that the Bible is not some far off stained glass book written for stained glass saints. It's for knuckleheads like you and me. It's for people experience seasons of rejoicing and seasons of great loss. And it speaks of a God who is truly equally good in the midst of seasons of abundant blessing and seasons of abundant loss. How could you do anything but worship that God? And he ends this time of being so real with the Lord and with the readers of the text with another explosion of praise. Look at the final verses. It says, starting in verse 16, O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your hand, of your maid servant. You've loosed my bonds 
I will offer you sacrifices of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all of his people in the courts of the house of the Lord in your midst. O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. So first, what he does. Notice, there's three. This psalm breaks down evenly. There's three times of adoration and there are three times of intense trial. And he weaves seamlessly in and out, almost like that's what the Christian life looks like. But first, to recalibrate himself, he reminds himself of his identity. He says, I am your servant, O Lord. Whatever happens in this life, I'm never going to give you up. Whatever happens in this life, I'm yours. Brothers and sisters, if you're going through a season of getting knocked down, Let this be the application that you leave with. Remind yourself of who you are in Christ. Remind yourself that you are a child of the Most High God. Remind yourself that, as Ephesians 1 says, that you are the Beloved. Remind yourself that you are the apple of His very eye. Remind yourself that He is your Daddy, and if you being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly Father who's perfect. Remind yourself that He is a good, good Father. That's who He is. And remind yourself that you are His child. That's who you are. And next, He reminds Himself why He desires to live as a servant of the Most High. He says, because you've loosed my bonds. Think about that. God took away my shackles. He freed me from slavery. Anyone here ever been freed from slavery by the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what Romans 6 is all about. You were once a slave to sin, and now we're slaves to God resulting in righteousness. So now I will give myself as your servant forevermore. Deuteronomy 15 has one of the most beautiful pictures of this in the whole Bible. It talks about when a slave was set free. But then out of love for his master, he returns and expresses a desire to live in the house of his master forever. So they would do this ritual where the master would take the slave over to the doorpost of the house and would take an awl and put his ear against the doorpost and would pierce his ear. And that piercing would be a mark that this, now, this person now willfully submitted himself to the master to live as a servant in his house forever. That picture, that's the picture here. He's loosed your bonds. He's set you free. And now you return and say, you've taken away my slavery. And the Son has set me free. So now, like in Deuteronomy 15, I long to return to the house of my Master. And I long to be your servant. But now I'm a servant with a heart who's been set free. But the major difference between this and Deuteronomy 15 is He's the one that was pierced for your freedom, not you. Isaiah 53, he was pierced through for your transgressions. And by his scourgings, we're set free. We've been healed. And now I long to be the servant who lives in the house of my Lord, who paid for my transgressions and to be his servant all the days of my life. 
And lastly, he remembers to come to the Lord with a time of thankfulness. And interestingly enough, he says he vows to live his thankfulness in the presence of all of his peoples. And you can't read the language here without it directly calling to mind the parable of the ten lepers who came to Jesus. There's ten lepers who came to him and said, Son of man, save my life. And Jesus in his goodness saved all ten and nine of them just went about on their way and on their business. But it says that one returned and just threw himself at the feet of his master in thankfulness because how could he do anything else? My life was lost, but you saved me, O Lord. That's what the language is getting at in here. That I'm going to offer the sacrifice of worship by living a life of thankfulness all of the days of my life. And then he ends the final verse with praise the Lord. And that's exactly what we're going to do as we go to communion. God, thank you for this beautiful text. You're a good, good father. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.